All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity podcast. Today, I have with me Eric Paulus from Ecology Action, um, and Ecology Action is an organization that kind of helps out at a place called Circle Acres, and it is a place that Natureversity utilizes quite a bit for our programs. And Eric, I just want to say thanks so much for being on here. We've been trying to get you on for a while, and I've just been eager to talk to you because I know there's so much of a story to tell about that land and about Ecology Action in general. And um, I know our listeners are excited to have you on too. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we can make time. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? What is this place called Ecology Action in Circle Acres? Yeah, so my name's Eric. Um, I'm the director of Ecology Action of Texas, and we manage a nature preserve called Circle Acres Nature Preserve, which is located in the Montopolis neighborhood of Austin. Um, we are adjacent to Roy G. Guerrero Colorado River Metro Park, um, which is a huge 400-acre public park in the city. Um, and I've been managing the preserve since 2016, um, after Ecology Action um, stopped uh, the recycling program after 45 years. They kind of uh, transitioned to Circle Acres, but all the uh, former staff had left and moved on. And so I helped just kind of take care of the land until we could get some grant funding to help start some projects back up there. Um, but I was also part of the original cleanup, um, like 2005 to 2007. So I was part of the um, trash removal team at Circle Acres um, when it was still an EPA brownfield. Um, so that was a huge undertaking for several years, but it was grant funded for the first two years by the EPA. And we removed over 100 tons of trash from the site um, that was all dumped after it was a capped landfill. So a little bit of the history of the site, it was um, it was, uh, it was cattle pasture for about 60, 80 years. And then um, aggregate mining started from the Colorado River, worked its way up the uh, creek and um, dug out a huge pit, um, open pit gravel mine in what is Circle Acres today. And in the uh, sort of the... Not quite the uplands of it, but a little bit higher elevation. The city of Austin was renting the property from the Grove family to openly burn municipal waste out there in uh, Montopolis. And it was at a time when Montopolis, that part of Montopolis wasn't part of the city of Austin. And uh, so in 1970, they, they kind of crudely capped it and abandoned it. Um, I think that's when it became illegal to, to burn trash in, in, this, in urban areas. Um, it could have also been when that part of Montopolis was incorporated. It's a little bit unclear why they just stopped around that time, but I know in the early 70s it became illegal to, to burn trash like that. Um, so what they did is they just they just left it and abandoned it, and then um, the community just thought that it was still a landfill, and so people continued to dump off a of bluff above for over 30 years. And um, when we started cleaning it up in 2005, there was just a huge... What kind of things were you pulling out of there, trash-wise? <clears throat> Um, all kinds of stuff. It was a, it was a known place for contractors to bring their waste. So we had, uh, just dozens and dozens of, of, uh, roofs, like shingles from roofs, um, like tons of that stuff, literal tons, uh, lots of metal. So it was all like development stuff. Yeah. A lot of, yeah. And then some household stuff, um, car parts, lots of metal. We recycled over 30 tons of metal wow. onto that site too. There's still quite a lot of rubble from busting up roads and patios and things like that and um prior to that the landfill itself where the city was burning the trash they from what i've been told from some of the old timers in the neighborhood is that was east avenue when they started developing i-35 they broke up 
East Avenue and uh, used like the curbs and concrete to line what became the landfill. Wow. Yeah. That's where, okay. So there, you can still see some of that probably at EA, some of those big chunks of concrete and things. <coughs> yeah, you can see, you can make out curbs and things like that. Yeah. Wow. Man, that's insane. So it was a <clears throat> dump and landfill and, uh, you know, they were torching trash. And you said it officially was halted by the city in what year? 1970. Yeah. 1970. And for the next 30 years or 36 years before you got to it in 2006, what was happening to it then? They just continued as a dump? So the landfill part is now a grassland. So that was a little bit lower, but the... People could still access the uh, higher portion. So it's kind of like a step almost, like it, there's tiers up further up upland. So from the uh, the road above, people were able to drive back on this property and just pull up and dump off the, the backside of that. And I've even met people that participated in that in, back in the day. And like I said, they had no idea it wasn't a landfill or it wasn't supposed to be a landfill at that point. Wow. That's interesting to meet people who are like, yeah, I used to dump here back in the day. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> like, I yeah, we cleaned it all up. <laughs> there's one guy in the neighborhood that worked for... A uh, contractor that would they would remodel houses in Hyde Park and they would bring it over to Montopolis to dump the material. Wow. Yeah, and do you think they're doing that because it costs money to get rid of that stuff and they're just finding an easy way to dump it? Yeah, just that's saving, what's going on. Saving a buck, yeah. saving a buck. Got it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And so, had, did you get a chance to um, utilize any of that stuff back into EA when y'all were building, or there any metal, you know, frames or anything that you can say, look. This was one of the pieces of trash I pulled out, but it's still existent as part of our infrastructure. Yeah, we, I mean, like I said, we recycled about 30 tons of metal, which helped kind of continue the project on um, because we were selling that back to metal recyclers. Oh, Um, that's awesome. Some of our signage, uh, there's a couple of signs that are made out of scrap metal that was found on site. um, And we've used a lot of the concrete for erosion control and steps. And um, there was... uh, a brief, uh, um, what's the word? People were trying to garden at one point out there, so they're using the the concrete to sort of line garden beds, which wasn't a great idea. <laughs> That's interesting. Just random people, like, uh, yeah, basically, yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, so before you got into EA and you started working at Circle Acres, what what was life like for you? Like, how was growing up and things like that? Were you big into nature growing up? Uh, more or less. Yeah. I grew up in an urban environment. I grew up in Washington, DC and Maryland. Um, is that where you were born? Yeah. I was born in Washington, DC and moved to a suburb of Baltimore when I was like 11. Um, and it was urban and suburban environment. Um, but I did spend a lot of time playing in the creeks nearby. Um, that was something my friends and I did a lot. We spent a lot of time playing in creeks. Yeah. And when you got out of high school, where, where were you headed as far as school? Did you go to college? Uh, yeah, I tried to go as far away from my parents as I could. <laughs> so I went <laughs> like to, most of us. Yeah, I went to Arizona State for a first year, basically because I could get into that school. Um, and I liked Arizona a lot, but I had a good friend from high school that was living in Austin. So I had visited a couple times and kind of came here first uh, temporarily, but ended up staying. So I did several years at ACC and then finished college at UT. Nice. And what year was that? I think I finished in 2005. Nice. Yeah. So you knew to, you immediately knew like okay maybe you know find something around here cuz you loved the Austin vibe and is that how how did the opportunity to go do the volunteering and the big cleanup in 2006 how did that occur? What led you to that? 
Well, I was uh, I was pretty heavily involved in uh, like the activist scene in Austin. So um, we, I was part of a group called the Rhizome Collective, and we had a warehouse space um, kind of East Fourth and Allen Street. And uh, there was at that point there was a pallet dump next to us, a couple acres of just dumped pallets, and um, there was some money from the EPA for these brownfield remediation grants. So uh, some of the folks at Rhizome had applied to try to clean up that pallet dump um, next to us. Um, so there's like thousands of pallets just dumped in this field? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Now it's, now it's an apartment complex. Oh. I just drove by every day. <laughs> um, Not much improvement, are you saying? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's like a five-story parking garage right there next to the old building. Yeah. Um, but the city of Austin kind of steered us towards this, this property in Montopolis because it was like this enormous dump basically and um the owner of it wanted to get out get it off his hands because it was cost more to clean up than um they could make developing it they were i mean they had these ideas of trying to develop an apartment complex on top of a landfill in a floodplain wow Um, so that was never going to happen so they the city kind of coordinated with the owner like they would donate it to the rasm collective um in exchange for like cleaning it up yeah so i was part of that and uh originally got hired out and then continued as a volunteer for some time yeah, and so after you did the major cleanup, where did you go? So 2006, you said there was this gap before you came on full-time and uh, to help Ecology Action. What were you doing in between? What did you do after the big cleanup? Um, well, I was all over the place. I uh, was in Mexico and Italy for a while, and then Whoa. Um, came back well, to Austin for a little bit. Was not, like, really involved with anything at Circle Lakers other than, like, bringing them some, some native plants here and there. And then uh, me and my partner, my partner went to grad school in Massachusetts, and then we went to India for a while after that, and then eventually came back to Austin, and um, actually was farming for about five years, and uh, started um, in the nursery trade doing that, and um, when the recycling center was closed down, they they had written a grant to help kind of uh, kickstart stuff at Circle Lakers again, and so I was just hired like 10 hours a week just to help manage that property. And um, I like doing that much more than growing food as much. I'd like to say I'm a recovering farmer. (laughs) So even though I'm working all the time, it's still like much easier on my body. Yeah. But I would say in a way you're still a farmer because of all the plants and Yeah, I guess like carbon farming. Cultivation that you're doing out there with some of those old oaks. And yeah, how's how's that going? Um, It's it's good. Like uh, we have just built our third greenhouse out there this year um so we're trying to basically guerrero park circle acres is um it was a dairy farm and cattle pastures for potentially 100 years um so a lot of the native uh flora from the area disappeared during that time but it's a remarkable green space so it's like over it's i think it's with all the green space around it's like seven eight hundred acres of continuous green space in the city will include like the golf course and the Colorado river wildlife refuge across the river. Um, so the idea is to, to grow native plants, um, and just kind of accelerate the, um, ecosystem restoration that's going on there, which is great for me because the hustle of growing plants is is selling them, which is not something I find fun. So I, I, I do enjoy growing them for the park. Yeah. And right now, what, particular ones are you trying to make happen you know right now as far as like trees or shrubs or any vines or what what are the um goals for 
the plants were. Yeah, I mean all kinds of all kinds of native trees, but um, I guess like if you look at some of the the broad acreage of Guerrero Park, which is a big project we're working on now, there's it was cattle pasture for so long that it's just like five tree species that have come back, um, mm-hmm. half of them invasive, and so a lot of restoration work would go in and and kind of spray and get rid of all that invasive stuff, um, which is not a technique I would condone. I think there's a lot of unintended consequences with that strategy. And so what we're doing is trying to plant and maintain um, native trees to just eventually take over that space. Because the big issue with the invasive species is they don't allow the native trees and other right. plants to to have that, that space to grow. So we can, we can kind of uh, toy with that a little bit by planting and caging trees and, and mulching them and giving them like a good start on life so they can eventually outcompete those invasive species. Yeah. But we have all kinds of um, species. Um, I, I do like the grasses personally. So I, we do a lot of Eastern gamma grass and big blue stem and switchgrass and little blue stem and um, all kinds of grasses. And uh, been trying to propagate. There's a several very old oak trees in the park. Uh, I've been told 800 plus years old. Wow. Um, so like this, this week they, this one that I've been using to propagate from, uh, it started dropping its acorns again. So, um, yes. yeah, it's time. Yeah. It's time. <clears throat> and what happened to those last ones? Do you want to tell anyone what happened? With the, the With batch from a couple years ago? Yeah. yeah. We had about 30 that were just doing amazing and overnight a rabbit just mowed them all down. Uh, um, one so, probably single rabbit just yeah. snipped so them all. I did get two out of that. Um, so they're they're actually in the park planted and doing, they survived the summer without any extra water, just a cage around them. Yeah. Nice. So those are those are growing yep. so right along that um, trail that leads into the pavilion area of Roy G? Um, no, they're up top where the, near the, the mother tree. Oh, yeah. got it. That's so cool, man. So a lot of the stuff there at EA, when you go, if you're listening to this and you've never been, um, as Eric had mentioned before, it's within a section of Roy Guerrero Park. So it's on the east side and 400 Grove Boulevard will kind of get you to the parking lot. And from there, you got to walk a little southward to the side of the trail that's on the east and you'll see a big sign and that'll get you in. But if you notice, a lot of the things there when you get there to EA are like uh, recycled and refurbished material. So can you tell us like how does how do you get a hold of that stuff and where are you, where is it coming from? Are people making donations? Can they make donations like um, with all the different infrastructure that y'all have there? Yeah, I mean it's come from all over. Like for some of it was left over from the recycling center that mm-hmm. was just materials brought over. Um, some of it donated. Um, some of it actually. There's some stuff that was dumped like up the street that I was able to use. Uh, first greenhouse was the greenhouse ahead of my farm. So just kind of rebuilt it at Circle Acres. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a cool composting toilet out there. And it, when you look at it, it just the entire thing looks like, yeah, y'all reused and repurposed a lot of stuff to make this. And how can you tell us a little bit about the story of that composting toilet? Because I know it's got a unique story. Yeah. So that was a. A big ordeal. <laughs> um, we, uh, so Rhizome, I think Ecology Action had that commission. I can't remember if it was the Rhizome Collective. There's a lot of overlap between the two groups. Um, but that was apparently the first municipally code-approved compost toilet in the United States. Um, it's definitely in Texas, but most likely United States. And so that took like four years of working with the city of Austin and watershed protection to get um, permitting. So it's permitted as a sewage facility. And um, it was built, and then I think it was Newsweek did an article about it. 
and then uh, maybe the statesman and somebody from city code enforcement saw that and realized that we didn't have a building permit and came down and issued a citation for it, even though we'd spent so much time working with the city. Not, o- not only that, also cleaned up the toxic mess that the city had left there. And so that was a big, uh, big fiasco at the time. And uh, it's, it's created a lot of lingering distrust with the city doing anything with them. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, you know, it's interesting to hear that, right? That they say, oh, well, this one's approved. But then when you go down to Marymore Seagrant Park and just to the left of the pavilion there, there is an old composting toilet and it's all boarded up and you can't get in it. But that's my question is, why were they in city parks, you know, to begin with as a form of, you know, using the restroom? But then all of a sudden there's such backlash against putting them in places that's kind of private and... Yeah, I think there probably wasn't as much stringent adherence to code back then. Um, mm. And so when we were doing it, it was it was trying to be official because, I mean, we had a compost toilet at the Rison Collective that wasn't permitted, but, I mean, it had been operating safely for many years. Um, yeah. But so we wanted to have something official out there and just as like a proof of concept and set the precedent, and that did help in usher in new rules for composting toilets. So now it's a lot easier to do that in the city of Austin. Yeah. I always wonder, I'm like, who are they trying to protect with all these rules and guidelines? Like, are they trying to protect people from getting sued? Or are they trying to protect, like, the government from Like, I don't get it. I'm like, yeah, who are you protecting with this say. nonsense? It, it could be good intention. I mean, th- you do have to be careful with sewage. Um, yeah, of course. But th- there's obviously a, a safe way to do it. And if we had much more usage, it'd be a different story. But Right. Um, but I look at it like, a, I guess, because I'm a survivalist here and I'm an educator. I'm like, it's like starting fires. It's like if you started millions of them, if you've been composting and you've been, you know, homesteading and like permaculture and like, like how can somebody just come along and be like, well, well, we just passed these codes and enforcements. You can't do any of this rainwater collection yeah. anymore. Well, it's not, so weird. Not only that, maybe a thousand feet from there, there's sewage overflow pipes from yeah. the system. Oh, you can smell it in the park. So yeah, you yeah, can. There's certain areas where you do not to, go. They're designed to overflow in flood events, raw sewage into the creeks. And that's, that's the system that's designed. So it is, it is. Bit of a head scratcher and tedious, but um, yeah, we yeah. we try to work within it as best we can. <laughs> so, um, what other things are going on there at EA? What other things are you responsible for, and do you do as far as uh, maintenance and care? And we know we know that you propagate some of the trees and the bioremediation, but anything else that you're doing over there? Yeah, I mean, we have a extensive trail system, so it's kind of constantly making improvements to that. Um, we use a lot of uh, mulch from arborists, so they they get to dump on the property their their wood chips. Um, so we just put them to use. Um, so we didn't want to use gravel for our trails because the site is a former aggregate mine um, mm-hmm. for gravel. So it didn't make sense to make a problem somewhere else to mm-hmm. give us right. this trail. So, um, which turned out really great because the mulch makes a really awesome surface um it's decomposing turning into soil the soil the organisms in the mulch and the soil are helping break down any residual contaminants and fertilizing the ground and creating like really healthy uh like carbon stable soil that's um just like what two three weeks ago we had all the the rain there's literally a couple days they, they come and go like throughout the day but tens and tens of thousands of mushrooms along the trail yeah. and you get there at eight in the morning, they're everywhere. And by two in the afternoon, they're entirely gone. So like most people don't even believe me when I tell them that there's probably over a hundred thousand mushrooms out here earlier today. Yeah. I've seen it 
personally. I know it's like the little white ones, and then they got those ink caps, and then I've, I think they're beautiful. I love seeing them every morning when I get to go out there. Um, so in the um, other ways of opportunities, I know that you've partnered with some organizations. Um, can you talk about some of the folks that you've partnered with to do certain things, like any buildings or structures out there too? Um, yeah, so we built last summer, or I guess last spring and summer, we built um, the the decks for an outdoor classroom with uh, UT's Gulf Coast Design Lab, uh, which is a UT School of Architecture Design Lab class. And so students from those classes help design and build the, uh, the first phase, which is the decks, and hopefully it can help uh, get us a roof one day. Um, we worked with Capital Area Master Naturalists this summer to help us build a lean-to roof, which now we have like five or 6,000 gallon water harvesting capacity off of that. Um, obviously Natureversity comes for a summer camp. And so we work with them, um, to use the space and, uh, the central Texas mycological society, we're starting a sort of a longer term research project with that using the plants in the nursery and mycorrhizal fungi and saprophytes to help, um, just demonstrate that these organisms can really help kickstart um, tree health and like and be a boon to tree and plant health overall. And they're they're pretty delicate organisms in the sense that they can they can be destroyed and lost from ecosystems with a lot of uh, turning of the soil and compaction and things like that. But they can also be reintroduced and um, they have like a profound impact on plant health and carbon sequestration. Uh, we have some beehives with two hives honey, which they keep. They keep uh, about ten hives on site um, for honey production, and I'm probably I'm probably forgetting a few other things. Um, we had a Boy Scout help with the bridge last month, um, and we we worked with other groups. Texas Trail Tamers. We did a sustainable trails workshop right before COVID, and started uh, like a new trail entrance from one of the neighborhood streets. Yeah. And where does <clears throat> all the funding come from? Like, how do you get the money to, you know, utilize all these organizations? And when they partner with you, are they, you know, looking for something or are they just, <clears throat> excuse me, are they just bringing their tools and their resources to say, hey, like, we believe in this uh, mission and, you know, bioremediation of this site? And yeah, how does that work? Yeah, that's that's been the tricky thing. Um, so, we're, I mean, we're a grassroots organization. Um uh, so a grassroots nonprofit organization. So we, we rely on small grants and project-based grants. Um, we don't really have much foundation support, but that's really just because I don't really know how to write those grants, uh, something I'm, I'm working on now. Um, but we get small donations, and then we have project-based grants, which are specifically fund certain projects at the park. So we had one for the, the classroom decks. Um, so it funded the materials, and the, the UT class donated their labor to help design and build it. Um, we've got several urban forest grants, um, from the city of Austin. So for instance, uh, the central Texas mycological society just got one for the research at the circle acres mycological research station, which is sort of getting revamped, um, to help study the mycorrhizal as well as microremediation um, techniques that we've used, um, in the past at circle acres. And, uh, we've, we've also just got another research grant ourselves to look at a project we're doing in the park, um, where we've, uh, got the city to stop mowing a section of the park and, and sort of planted native grasses and trees. And we're just going to look at that long term and see what happens when you stop mowing ground that's been, um, mowed for many, many years and just continually degrades year after year. What 
what happens when you stop doing that and then what happens when you stop doing that and reintroduce native species. Yeah. So that's all very exciting. Um, <clears throat> it's so alarming to me that there's, I don't, th- th- it's just, I don't know. I guess what I'm going to say is it seems like such common wisdom to know that if you're going to mow every single day, you know, not every day, but every week or every month or year after year, something's going to happen to that soil. Something compaction, erosion, degradation, you know, um, displacement of minerals and soils that are trying to leach back in. And it's so weird that we have to say, hey, hold on a second. Let's do a study on this. And it's not like, duh, (laughs) you know, type stuff. So, yeah, it blows my mind that you, unfortunately, you probably see a lot of, like you said, um, unfortunately, there's kind of a bad taste between certain partners, you know, of powers to be and your organization. And, um, yeah, why we have to deal with stuff like that. It's almost like they're actively trying to prevent the restoration of those sites. And it's so weird. Yeah. I think it's more about, it's the way things are done. And so it's easier to do them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but like this summer was, you know, this incredible drought, massive heat wave, um, the great lawn, as they call it in Guerrero Park, which is a couple acres of, of lawn, just parched, like no irrigation, just completely dry. And just to see, because they have a contract, mowers going through there yeah, when there's no grass growing and just <laughs> blowing the soil away in these huge clouds and just realizing that they do that monthly every year. And it's at times it's a slow process where you lose the soil that way over decades. And then you have these flash flood events where it just, sweeps away massive amounts like what happened on the the creek on the other side of the park where right. like a whole, that whole forest was lost yeah. overnight because of poor poor city planning yeah you're um, talking about all those cottonwoods yeah and uh, yeah. what they call country club creek west was like that was a huge cottonwood forest um those are some of the biggest cottonwoods i've ever seen in my mm-hmm. life too yeah. and they just fell straight into that creek because of the way the flood hit yeah and i mean that was that was because of poor city drainage management yeah they, of course. they started a, a drainage um, ditch base like they started the diverted part of the creek that way and then never finished it so it found its own course to the river eventually when the the floods hit yeah yeah it's funny how <clears throat> we keep thinking like we can control the flow of water i'm like man that it's just it's a powerful force it's an yeah. old saying of water will make cowards of us all <laughs> yeah. and i think that's very humbling and true um so in addition to you know what you've been doing there, you spoke about um, some research opportunities and so specifically the mycological research um, folks and what other uh, things are y'all doing there? I know you spoke about, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the streams and the springs that you've recently found and if you could talk a little bit about those and how you've got them um, now labeled, I believe. like Yeah, so um, I guess the springs have always been there, but they were sort of... Um, scattered about like they're in a clustered area but they weren't they weren't flowing into the same spot so it was difficult to see how much water was coming out of them um and at one point after the after the droughts you know 2011 2012 when the water table started to rebound like just a lot of water was coming out of these springs and um it seemed more than before so we were concerned that there was like a wastewater leak or a water line leak so uh, one of the people that was um doing some of the micro-remediation projects back then, Daniel Reyes with uh, Myco Alliance. He was also worked in city watershed. So he had made some uh, kind of like we just started concentrating them so we could test the flow rate and get water samples and, and put it off to a lab to see what was going on there. And um, kind of to our surprise, it, it was all spring water. Um, Man, that's so cool. 
to know you got to spring on the land. Yeah. And so I had tried working with the city for several years to come document it and never really had much success getting through to anybody. And then um, we had an incident last summer, maybe the fall before. I forget exactly when, but we had a developer buy the five acre lot above us, um, which is the spring comes out underneath that and just started unpermitted digging um, huge pits on this, this ground. He was basically trying to get rid of any evidence of the dumping that had occurred there in the past um, so that he could flip the property, make, make a, make more money on it, not having to actually do a proper bioremediation of the site. And so we were able to get watershed out there to test it. And it was like perfect timing. Like while they were testing it, the, the excavator from up top finally showed up and like was literally digging huge chunks right in front of the ocean. Oh, wow. So they immediately Busted. put a stop work order. Like He had no permits. Um, he actually came back a month later and tried to do it again and got busted again. But they were able to put the springs uh, listed as a critical environmental feature. So now they have like a 150-foot buffer of protection around it. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah. And I know there's like some kind of unique toad or frog that lives right in that spring, isn't there? Um, yeah. Be making yeah, there up. is. So we... We started we started using iNaturalists um, a long time ago and then had uh, um, some professors at ACC Riverside Campus nearby also interested. So we just started this this collection project of just logging organisms on this iNaturalist map, basically. So anyone that, that uh, takes a photo of an organism uploads it, and it's like automatically put into this collection project. And so um, since I think we started that in... 2017 or 18 um we have close to 2,000 species at circle acres and it's over it's close to 2400 in guerrero park that's amazing yeah which is when i started i was thinking you know maybe 500 that's yeah that's what i was gonna say is under a thousand yeah so um, 2400 i mean we have just that colorado river attracts so much yeah it's a really important wildlife corridor because it's 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 a green one um so there's it's the creek that comes through Circle Acres, it, it drains into uh, intermittent wetland, which is the former aggregate mine, the the leftover depression from that. That's that kind of pond-like thing that's mm-hmm. over there? Yeah. yeah. So, And then that goes down to the Colorado River, less than a quarter mile below. So it, there's a lot of wildlife that moves through there to access the, you know, the, the, the park, the golf course, all the green space that's in there. So almost everything comes through that corridor. So yeah. we're it's, able to document a lot of it. It's really cool. I have seen um, the waters bring some crazy things like the, you know, the large amounts of trash and stuff like that. Like, where is that coming from? Like, how does that trash end up on the... Yeah, so that's all... The, the, the trash that ends up in the wetland is all from urban runoff. So um, a lot of it his, is historical dumping, and a lot of it is contemporary, and people just um, putting stuff out by the, the curb or not... And then it makes its way to the drain into the creeks and the tributaries and worked its way down because we're at the bottom of a 900 acre urban watershed so the watershed goes all the way up to old torf and montopolis okay um and so back in 2017 we started like i'd have volunteer groups clean up um the wetlands every year like we just it was like a constant thing so eventually i started getting these large groups of people like ut students that wanted to come and you know it's it's hard to manage 15 to 20 people and we were getting groups of you know 20 to 40 people wanting to to do stuff so that's a great thing to uh 
it's a great way to use people to help pick up trash. So we just started kind of working, started at the river, worked our way up the watershed. And just in the last, I'd say maybe going on six years, we've picked up over 2,600 bags of trash, dozens of tires, like mattresses. This is all out of Guerrero Park and the, the wetland down there. Yeah. And then this, this winter we started working into tributaries, um, which were just, they're kind of these, these hidden spaces between properties and just like mind boggling how much trash is in there. But yeah. Easily you could tell, you know, probably starting in the 60s, they were starting to accumulate all this trash. Yeah, because we find cans that are like really old cans, like old Coke cans and things that I'm like, this is from like the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah, we still find that stuff as the soils from those creeks kind of get exposed. I, the kids find it all the time. They're like, I found moop. Moop is uh, matter out of place. Oh, that's what, that's that's what the kids call <laughs> the trash at Natureversity. So with... The volunteering opportunities, there's, you know, picking up trash. Um, and is there anything else that y'all are doing besides that? Like, and as far as trail maintenance you had mentioned earlier, is there an opportunity for volunteers to come out and do that too with y'all? Yeah, there is. Yeah. And um, we're about to start planting all these trees um, in Guerrero Park. So we got, we have an urban forest grant that helped pay for like 240 five gallon trees nice. which is uh, we just got last that's week awesome. um so that's like a big ordeal to move that many trees we basically walk them like a mile into the park and plant them are you looking mulch. for volunteers to do that yeah so that's going to be the big fall project is to get everything in the ground because we want to plant it plant them well mulch them cage them so they actually survive um there's there's a lot of people well intended that just plant out these trees but and don't protect them or water them at first. And there's just too many deer, um, in this area that that's why there's no native trees regenerating because the deer will favor them and eat all of them. Um, so like, I, I think I've told you before, there's zero young cottonwoods in the park besides the one that we've planted and caged. Um, it's because the deer will just yeah. annihilate them. So, um, the trees, Delicious. yeah, the trees that are there, most of them are ending, getting towards the end of their lifespan. And so without our intervention to actually plant and maintain them and get them established, there won't be cottonwoods for people 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. And those cottonwoods are beautiful. They're almost like our version of little miniature sequoias. Yeah. Because they're so big. I mean, they're 160 feet, 180 feet tall sometimes, these great big branches. And when they fell down, like, I thought it was cool for the kids to play on there. And I didn't really, like, think about, like, because it was just one or two originally. And then I saw, like, that was the 2015 flood. Mm -hmm. I saw a couple of them come down. And then we had that other flood. And then more came down. And I was like, oh, no. Now I'm starting to see, like, because at at first, like I said, I thought it was fun for the kids to climb up on them and play and pull up bark off. And they were making boats and using the inner bark for rope and cordage. And cottonwoods are amazing trees for survival. And uh, now I'm just appalled when I see those hawks, like, not singing from up there and soaring around up there and i'm like ah so because it's just a big bunch of boulders over there and then that bridge got knocked down so for those of you who don't know what i'm talking about right now on the east side of austin near pleasant valley um what's that dam called uh tom miller the tom miller dam over there on pleasant valley there is an area of guerrero park uh as you make your way towards the disc golf area and you can see these just large giant what are those boulders they yeah, just sorry, it was this Longhorn Dam. Longhorn Dam. But yeah, so the... That's right. Those boulders are actually... I think they might be from the Mon- the uh, Mopac uh, redevelopment. They're they're kind of a similar rock, but those are kind of a stopgap for... They were trying to arrest the uh, 
the further unzipping of the creek, mm-hmm. so the erosion upland. Um, right. And they are, it's turned into now a $30 million uh, project to, to sort of replace that, and which is really a, a gift to the developers that are coming on uh, Wickersham and Riverside. Um, and what are they going to do there? They're building a huge, um, like, multi-use complex. They've been uh, nicknamed the Domain 2, so kind of trying to to recreate what ha- what's going on at the domain in East Austin. Um, and unfortunately it was like the last bastion of truly affordable housing. And so for the past year, there's been these huge complexes that are totally boarded up that had been affordable housing and they just been sitting there waiting to get demolished whenever this project gets started. So that's what all that is over there. Mm-hmm. The, all those like their apartment complexes that are all boarded up. Yeah. I've been wondering, I'm like, what is going on over there? Because I figured any day now a developer is going to come in there and revamp the apartment complexes and have homes again there for people. But all that's going to be torn down to be put in a domain style. Yeah. So shops, I assume some businesses and, and housing. Yeah. I can't even imagine what, you know, if it's like the domain, like those types of shops, who's going to afford any of that? Yeah, well, you know, Oracle has their headquarters being built next door. Um, it's, I mean, that that whole area is going to change a tremendous amount over the next 10 years. And the, the, the uh, rail corridor is going to go through there. Wow. Man, that's insane. So y'all listening to this, let me, let me tell you, this is why we've got to help Circle Acres and Ecology out because it's probably going to be the last place. I mean, goodness, didn't they want to come after Guerrero Park for the FC stadium? Yeah, they tried to put the stadium there. And that's that's kind of what was the impetus of this restoration trail project we did in the park because, uh, for instance, our council member, Pio Renteria, was telling the public that no one uses the park, which is that's not true. patently absurd. People um, out there listening, I'm telling you, write to that guy and tell your senators, yeah, well, your congressmen, uh, we use this park. Yeah, he's on his way out. He's, he's term limited out, so he's not going to be... Oh council member much longer, but uh, who's who's going to replace him is concerning. But um, yeah, so that they try to put the MLS stadium there, which would never have worked because the soils just can't support it. There's no roads. There's no major roads into the park. Um, but I mean, it's it's also I would contend it's the most ecologically diverse park in the the city system. I would agree. And it's, I mean, there's a mile of river frontage. You can yeah. you can wade down the river and not see a person. Um, and so there's gonna be a lot of pressure on that park in the next 10, 20 years to, to turn it into like a Zilker park playground, which there's, there's space for that already. There's all that stuff going on, but there's these corridors that are so important to wildlife are disappearing and they are very fragile. And so what we wanted to do was sort of, um, extend the, uh, the healthy forest, which is like a, these gallery forests along country club Creek East, extend that outwards. So by planting, planting the native trees and grasses now so that in 10 years they can't say that there's nothing valuable here. Um, that's also why we started the biodiversity monitoring just to have this data set to be like, look, you can't make these claims. Like this is, I mean, I think it's a, it's a important, I mean, it could easily be a state park. Um, I think so too. It's three, it's 340 acres, right? It's, uh, f- uh, 392 acres, 392. plus circle acres, plus, plus the Colorado river wildlife refuge. Yeah, and which is another 120 or 150. Yeah. And I believe uh, Riverside golf course might be 190 acres or I forget exactly, but it's another vast green space. I mean, it's a golf it, course, but there's yeah, several. It, it rivals. Yeah. It rivals, um, McKinney falls for sure. You know, it's, it's in that size. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you know, one day it was, and we need more state parks around here. Cause I want I think one of the things that, 
makes the state parks just a little bit better. There just is access points of like checkpoints and things like that. And I know, you know, we want public spaces that don't cost money to help all families get into nature, but something's going on at Guerrero. I'm like, ugh, you know, it's unfortunate. Some of the fires and, you know, the trash dumps, like you say, and, you know, we're trying to run summer camps out there. And when, you know, certain um, demographics (laughs) are doing things out there, it's just, it makes it very difficult for having kids and to enjoy a bike ride or a walk or to go photograph some birds. And it really, I think deters people because of what's going on. Yeah. That's a challenge. Um, the, the rock dam we were talking about earlier, yeah. that was my son's favorite place to play and, um, definitely not a safe place to go these days. Um, but it's, it's also important to remember that this is city policy. Like the city deliberately moved people off the, the Butler trail into Guerrero park because they, the wealthier part of Austin didn't want to see it anymore. So of they, course, just, they yeah. just sent everybody into the woods in Guerrero Park. And uh, which is unfortunate because Montopolis already has a lot of concentrated poverty and the community there doesn't have the time to, to go to public meetings and complain about it. Um, and so they just sort of took advantage of that fact. And, and I mean, we saw this summer, there was three, 400 people living in the park. Yeah. And, um, th- those folks aren't served either. It's, you know, they're not, they're not in healthy environments. They're in very dangerous environments as well. And some I mean, people living literally in the creeks, um, which flood. You know, if we had the, the rains two weeks ago yeah. in the summer, there would have been dead people. Right. For sure. And it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And so, yeah, that's what, that was my, that was my question next was like, what are the biggest, you know, challenges that you face there um, at, to try to do what you do? Yeah, it's definitely humans. Um, so, I mean, there's, we get a lot of theft, unfortunately, um, which we're at a point now that pretty much everything valuable that's there has been taken or destroyed already. Um, <laughs> and, then, so, and then replaced and then taken again. Yeah. So we're at this <laughs> point where it's like they, they can't do much beyond vandalism. Um, but really the developers, uh, it's just like this voracious greed. And um, there's a lot of collusion between the developers and the planning department in the city to, to just um, put as much density everywhere um and it's just not really well thought out in terms of like where where are the ecologically important parts of the park and it's clearly country club creek east and so they're right now we're trying to sort of push back on on some of the higher end developments and there's a lot coming uh, across the river um in the near future where it's going to be many thousands of more people living there uh so what we try to do is just create a create a space that's welcoming to everybody. Like we're free and open to the public um, during daylight hours, and um, really just get the community involved, and so people have more of a sense of ownership of the space and help steward it. And that's really, to me, the most sustainable way to like protect land is to get more people to to love it and participate mm-hmm. in taking care of it. And um, I think ultimately that's what's going to help protect it and it's circle acres is a little unique it's you know it's a former landfill which is you know there's a lot of residual contamination there but it's also kind of a saving grace for it like it's not going to be an apartment complex or um whatever it's it's just gonna it's gonna stay a green space because of that which is it's nice yeah man i love it over there um my draw to it was through a friend eric who had some 
uh, interest in the mycological research station over there. And I think that was my first tour that I ever took was we just walked down that trail and I was like, dude, this is cool. There's like a dry erase board here and these big tanks. And I was like, this is amazing. And uh, he was just talking about how, what kind of research study they do on mushrooms. And as we continued to walk, I was like, man, there's just more and more over here. And uh, it was beautiful. I don't think the beehives were there back then. I don't think that metal pavilion area was back then. I know y'all had the shed still, but the more and more I walked around there, the more and more I just thought like, I'm just so thankful that this exists for the public to just explore. And um, there were so many, like you had said earlier, there's so much diversity. And because I was using iNaturalist all the time back then when I was wandering through there. And uh, we documented tons of stuff for this tracking project. So anything that was tracks and signs of animals. So if we saw scat or scratches or sometimes chewed trees from rabbits, <laughs> we would take pictures of it and then upload it to our, you know, database of uh, track and sign stuff. So I um, have a very special love for Circle Acres and Ecology Action, and I'm really thankful to you, Eric, for giving me an opportunity to bring kids out there and for to get them to experience that same love um, for a place. Because I think you said it perfectly when you said, you know, we're not going to be able to expect other people to protect things unless they have a love for it. You know, there's just no way to do that. And um, I think the way to do that is to show value in things. So by just saying things like, oh, this is a tree. It's cool. It's a poplar. It's a cottonwood. It, you know, helps feed insects and different things like that. It's like, well, let's have a different relationship with it as far as like the tinder that it makes when its branches fall off. The fact that you can turn it into bow drill parts. And I think that's the kind of stuff through survival that kids begin to go, wow, like I depend on this tree, you know, and through that I want the expression of, well, now this tree should be depending on me too, you know, to protect it. So <clears throat> I just wanted to say thanks so much again for what you're doing out there. And is there any way, uh, can you tell us like, how do we donate? Uh, how do we become uh, volunteers? What are the opportunities? Um, tell, talk about if there's field trips for schools listening that they want to go out there and research um, or take their kids to do some adventurous research. Yeah. Tell, talk us about that. Yeah, we have um, a lot of the information's on our website, which is uh, ecology-action.org. Um, we have a donation page. We have a visiting page where you can um, get some maps, and then there's a link to uh, that comes to me as an email for, for requests to volunteer. Um, we have a couple volunteer events. Like we have, we always have volunteer events, but um, a lot of groups like contact me. So we organize them that way. But then we have a couple public events coming up. Um, October 22nd is a Roots and Wings Festival where we're going to be planting trees in Guerrero Park um, and hopefully having some tacos. Yeah. And uh, November 5th is It's My Park Day. So we usually get participate in that and get a bunch of mulch delivered so people can help mulch the trailheads and some of the trees that are nearby. And uh, yeah, I'm looking for like groups of five to 15 people to help uh, plant the trees in the park this fall. Yeah. And so we try to try to get, I don't know, fit five to 15 trees planted per event and mulched and um, with cages. Yeah. And so one last thing is um, I wanted to ask what I don't know. You can, you can clarify with me here and the, the listeners, but there was some land acknowledgement recently with, um, some tribes and 
Yeah, that's actually coming up next, I guess this, this Saturday. Yeah. Ah. We did a, a cleansing ceremony last year, and so there's supposed to be one every year for five years. So this will be the second one. Got it. And can you speak to what tribe and um, who's organized and who, um, you know, kind of led led y'all that down that path? Yeah, it's it's not any one tribe in particular. It's several uh, regional tribes, and uh, it was organized by uh, one of our board members, Kiara. So she's um, just in network with lots of people and helped organize the original land cleansing. And I had reached out to her initially to help um, look at some some trees in the park that seemed extra special, um, like eight hundred year old trees, and uh, potentially some marker trees as well in Guerrero Park. And so started a relationship a few years ago, and um, yeah, she put, she put together the the first land cleansing and, and this one as well. Man, that's really cool. Is there any way that the public can be a part of that, or is it just specifically for them? Yeah, they're inviting um, allies as well. Okay, yeah, awesome. Well, I think uh, I'm I'm just eager to hear the feedback from this to see if you get just a ton of folks who come out and begin to take interest in this because I think it's such a unique and beautiful story and in fact when you go if you want to know more when you go to Roy G um, and you walk into Circle Acres there is a big sign um, you'll see this big rusty looking fireball that's where we make our fire pits and over there there's a big sign it tells you a lot more about the ecology and the um, background history of EA and Circle Acres so uh, Eric, thanks so much for being on and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to continue to working with you and, um, we'll be nerding out all the time. I don't know if y'all know, but Eric and I are friends. We talk on text all the time. So we're always telling each other the crazy things that happen in the park, but yeah, a lot of history here, but I'm so thankful that you were able to come on and do this. Yeah. Looking so. forward to next summer too. Yes. Excellent. Thank y'all. Y'all take care. Bye-bye.